From tellmeyourdreams.com, this is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about that space, that tension between finding work that pays the bills and making our work meaningful. The show lives where our personal and professional lives collide, giving all of us the chance to rethink how we live and labor in a work-from-everywhere economy. All of us have to-do lists, those endless scrolls of things we're responsible for that don't always get done. And there's a reason why they don't get done. It's what Stephen Pressfield calls the resistance and what Seth Godin calls the lizard brain. We get in our own way. We come up against a distraction or something more attractive shows up on our radar. And then we put a fake deadline on our to-do and push it off to tomorrow. If you're tired of that cycle, you are in for a treat. My guest today is James Clear, author of Atomic Habits. I've been reading James and following his advice at jamesclear.com for years, but it was this book that changed the game for millions around the world. My hope is that by the end of this conversation, you'll not only have some practical tactics to take charge of your responsibilities, but more so envision a proven habit path forward to take down your own resistances for good. James Clear, welcome to Converge. Hi, good to talk to you. James, you are the author of Atomic Habits, but you have been writing for a lot longer than when this book first came out. Tell a little bit about your story in advance of you coming up with this breakout hit. Well, I've been writing about habits and behavior change since late 2012, jamesclear.com. And I sort of, you know, I had a couple different entry points to the topics of habits and continuous improvement and performance. I was an athlete for a long time. I played baseball all the way through college uh, and a variety of other sports growing up. And then I've always been kind of scientifically minded. I was a biomechanics major in undergrad, so mostly chemistry and physics and biology and hard sciences, stuff like that. And then I went to business school uh, for graduate school, and I decided that I wanted to start my own thing once I left. And the first few years of being an entrepreneur, I, similar to many entrepreneurs, tried a bunch of ideas and just kind of floundered around and nothing really stuck. And so, of course, I had all these you know, habits that I was trying to build as a creator and a writer and an entrepreneur and leader. But... I also needed to study about like consumer psychology and writing uh, copy and sales pages and um, behavioral psychology. Like I was trying to understand why would someone sign up for an email list or mm. buy a product? You know, what would motivate somebody to take action? And the deeper that I got into that stuff, the more I started to like study related areas like behavioral psychology and habit formation and cognitive psychology and. Uh, as I read more about that stuff, that was when I started to be like, huh, you know, I can connect some of the dots. Like, oh, what I'm reading about here, that's similar to what I used to do as an athlete. Or I could use these ideas for my nutrition habits or my writing habits. And I just started to collect my thoughts on habits and behavior change. And so I wrote in private for a little while. I had this like very long Word doc where I was just kind of adding James's thoughts on habits to it. And eventually that got to be about, I think, like 60 pages long. And I was like, man, I should just, you know, take something here and publish it. And so uh, November 12th, 2012, I put out my first article 
And I decided that I was just going to write a new article every Monday and Thursday. And so I did that for the first three years. And that was really the writing habit that kind of, you know, not only set me on the trajectory to writing Atomic Habits and getting this book deal and so on, but also to like learning about the topic in depth. You know, I I had a friend early on, I was feeling kind of this imposter syndrome thing, like, you know, who am I to write about this stuff? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, the way you become an expert is by writing about it every week. And I sort of internalized that idea of, well, if I just show up and do the work when I get, you know, two or three years in, well, it turns out there actually aren't that many people who've written, you know, 100 or 200 articles on habits. So you kind of develop your expertise along the way. And um, when you combine that with my background as an athlete and my background as a kind of a science or science based thinker, I think it all kind of came together and ultimately led to the creation of atomic habits. It's interesting because you know habits is a is a topic that a lot of folks are interested in, especially hacking habits, finding ways to get there quicker. And the idea of atomic habits being breaking things down to its atomic level fundamental parts seems entirely right on, especially given your history as an athlete and as someone who likes to apply the scientific method. But in these days, you know, I think of you and I think of Charles Duhigg as two folks who have really thrust habits into the zeitgeist of popular culture. And definitely, a lot more people are paying attention to these kinds of things. I even think of guys like Tim Ferriss, too, as doing that kind of thing, where sure. he's he's just invited people to, to take advantage of ways to learn things quicker than they could on their own. But these conversations started way before Tim Ferriss and Charles Duhigg and James Clear when people think of the ancients who've been thinking about these kinds of things, the people that you would read initially, who, who do you point back to? Like, who who are the fundamentals that you pull from? Well, it depends on how deep you want to go. You know, I mean, uh, certainly the process of improvement and behavior change dates back, prob- I mean, probably longer than recorded history. But, you know, there I came across a couple interesting stories about Aristotle or Plato or, um, you know, a variety of different ancient thinkers as I was researching the book. There's one I ended up not including in the book, but one of the ancient philosophers, uh, there's a story of him scolding a young child for playing cop nuts, which is like a, I don't know, sort of like a gambling or dice throwing kind of game that I guess uh, people used to play a long time ago. Uh And the child replied, you're scolding me for this small matter. And he replied, oh, habit is no small matter. And, you know, like what you do now could develop into a gambling addiction when you're older, basically. And uh, so, you know, that story is from thousands of years ago. So, Certainly people have been aware of these ideas for a very long time. If you want to think more scientifically about habits and psychology, I think the vast majority of people would say that William James was sort of the father of modern psychology and certainly the father of like the modern thinking about habits and the brain. So that's more around like 1900-ish. And I kick off chapter three of the book, I believe, with a study from Edward Thorndike, which was in 1898, that kind of looked at how cats formed habits and behaviors. And that study, along with some of the other work that was being done around that time, eventually sort of kicked off the whole behavioral psychology movement that was popularized by B.F. Skinner in the 1930s. And so Skinner described habits as stimulus response reward. Uh, which is basically the same as the format that's laid out in Duhigg's book, Q, Routine Reward. And what that whole behavioral psychology movement found was that if you give people a cue or the right stimulus and you follow it up with a an appropriate reward or consequence, then you can really shape behavior in a lot of ways. So I knew that was going to be a very important part of the puzzle for my book, and it does play a big role. 
But then the last, I don't know, 50 to 75 years, there's been the cognitive psychology movement too. And those researchers have found that not only do external cues and rewards influence our habits, but also our internal moods and emotions and feelings. And so I wanted to have a model that I felt like accounted for that as well, of the impact of moods and feelings and thoughts on our habits and behavior. And so that was why I added a fourth stage to my habit model, so which is an addition to the model of Skinner or the one that Duhigg shares and so on. Anyway, so basically the, those are kind of the, I would say the, the broad strokes, like that's kind of the big way to think about where the conversation about habits has come from and uh, what the the history sort of looks like. Well, let's get into your story in particular. I think the way you tell the narrative around the experience, the traumatic experience as an athlete and what you had to navigate, could you share a little bit about that personally? Because there's something about understanding this. You're clearly an expert, like you understand this stuff, but it wasn't just a a theoretical understanding. You, this was an applied reality that you had to navigate. Talk a little bit about, about that experience early on. Well, when I was a sophomore in high school, I suffered this very serious injury. I was hit in the face with a baseball bat, and um, it was an accident, but I shattered both eye sockets, broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, um, very quickly began struggling with basic functions like swallowing and breathing, lost the ability to breathe on my own. Uh, I ended up having to be air cared to a hospital. I had three seizures that day. Uh, That evening, I was placed into a medically induced coma. And eventually, the next day, I'd been stabilized to the point where I could be released from that coma. But, you know, I had a very long road of recovery. I had double vision for weeks. I had to undergo surgery a week later. My first physical therapy session, I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line. I couldn't drive for eight of the next nine months. So it was a a very long and arduous process. And I, it was a period in my life when I was forced to start small. When I, you know, I, I didn't have an option to just flip a switch and suddenly be back to my healthy self or be back to playing baseball or, um, you know, I couldn't have like an epiphany or a transformation. And so I focused on whatever I could handle, you know, which was just very small things at the time, you know, little habits like making my bed each night or uh, each morning or uh, going to bed at a reasonable hour each night or preparing an hour uh, before class or studying consistently. Eventually, I began going to the gym a few days a week. And, you know, none of those habits are really remarkable habits in their own right. I mean, they're, they're all just small things. But they gave me a sense of control over my life. The control that I felt like I had lost, you know, I never asked for this injury to happen, felt like it was something that happened to me. Now I was able to regain a little bit of of that and uh, a little bit of that control that I felt like had been taken away. And so gradually, uh, I tried to make it back onto the baseball field. I ended up being cut from the varsity team the next year. Two years later, my senior season, I did make the team, but barely got to play. Somehow I was able to weasel my way onto a college team. Uh, so I came off the bench my first year. Uh, my sophomore season, I was a starter. My junior season, I was the captain. And uh, my senior season, I ended up being an academic All American. And it was really that process of, you know, going from the injury to the recovery to slowly, you know, improving my skills and getting back onto the baseball field over those five or six years that refined and honed my thoughts or experience with small habits. And this idea, you know, I, I never would have said it like this at the time, but really what I was just trying to do was get 1% better each day or, you know, build these habits and try to find a small margin for improvement uh, each day. And so, 
it was only years later when I began researching and writing about habits that I was able to put words uh, to that story in a better way. But um, I did have this background of, I guess, practical experience, uh, a period in my life when I had to build small habits and they ended up being the avenue or the method that I used to rebound from this serious injury and ultimately uh, find some level of success in my athletic career. It's funny, the the 1% better thing. I, I have a hunch, I could be wrong on this, but I, I have a hunch there's some friends of yours from high school who all of a sudden are really excited to be your friend right now. Because you know it, it doesn't look like you've made incremental improvements. It looks like you've become this megastar out of the blue. Like I have a, I have a friend from college who he's part of uh, pop culture lore right now because he was the dad of the the main star in the Bachelorette. So basically, the it was the end of the season. They were the final three, and the Bachelor really liked this particular girl. And this girl's dad, who's my buddy from college, showed up on the show and had this kind of fantastically great dad moment with his daughter, and that led to some more drama for the show. And it was fantastic. So, anyways, I I knew my friend Matt and reached out to him and. And I, it became immediately evident that I was not the only friend of his from college who saw him on TV and reached out to him because he looked like out of the blue, he became this phenomenon. And I, I imagine in your case too, it looks like out of the blue, when you were an academic All-American, it's like, who's this guy? He's an overnight success. Or now you're this best-selling author. But the building block pieces for that, if I'm hearing you right, had nothing at all like an overnight success. It was that that cliched 10 years to become an overnight success are these building block pieces. I guess my question is, is that true? And then second, if there's nuance to it, I'd love to hear it. And third, how do you deal with these people who, um, is that always the case? Or are there cases where people really do have these quantum leap moments, not just steady incremental over a long period of time? It's a loaded question. There's a lot there, but I'd love to hear you just chat for a bit. Uh, I mean, I, I think generally the answer is yes. There's always uh, a variety of small things behind a big change. You know, it's very rarely like a true step function where it just out of nowhere completely transforms. I mean, it, if nothing else, like let's say, um, let's let's take an example of something that is like really was like you know one of the fastest growing or most radical changes of all time, like Uber. The Uber was one of the fastest growing, maybe at the at the time when it was launched, fastest growing company in history. Well, you would think that is like the definition of an overnight success, but it depends on how you look at it and how deeply you dig. You know, like on the one hand, the reason Uber was able to grow so fast is because smartphones had proliferated so much. And so if you go back, you rewind the clock a little bit, it's like, well, every time someone was buying a smartphone, they were kind of loading the gun or building up this potential uh, that then Uber was able to unleash. So there were like a lot of small changes before that eventually led to the realization of that potential. And I think on a on an individual basis it often works like that, you know, like the you're right, you know, the 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 event, the moment is what people often talk about or focus on, right? Like writing a best-selling book or becoming the academic all-American or whatever. But it's really a bunch of individual choices in the days and years leading up to that that even primed the pump for that to happen. So uh, I think that's almost always true. I don't know. Perhaps, uh, perhaps there's something that is a radical change. But you know, I this is an example I give from the book. Take uh, an earthquake happening, right? An earthquake seems like a very rapid, very powerful, immediate event. But the truth is, those tectonic plates have been grinding against each other, building up pressure for millions of years before the tension was finally released in one dramatic moment. 
And, you know, sometimes people will critique um, small habits or little changes by saying something like, well, you can't cross a chasm in a single step, right? You say like, oh, journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. And I say, well, what about when you need to make a leap? And my reply is, well, you can't make a leap without getting a running start, right? Mm-hmm. So like you need you need something to build up the potential, to build up the momentum for that climactic event. And uh, I think that's almost always true. It's uh, so much of this, and one of the reasons why I'm so pleased with your response on this is this is so hopeful. Like when I think of my listeners at home or myself on the other end of this call, there's a sense in which these individual choices as you frame it, really they could be necessary but insufficient meaning they they have to be in play to have a shot at having those moments or events. But it also doesn't always determine that those moments or events are going to happen. Like I could do all the same steps that Uber did and not have those other kind of breaks that were contributing factors. Or if like there's some people who were athletes who had traumatic experiences like you did in high school and they don't become <laughs> academic All-Americans. Talk a little bit about if there is any the inherent value in the habit itself, not just the instrumental value of what it could potentially get you. Because I think there's the sense in which people at home, at least me, I, I think like this, I want to learn these things so that, as opposed to I want to learn these things for other reasons. So, so chat a little bit about your thoughts on the inherent value of habits, not just the instrumental value. Well, I think, I mean, your point there is, I think, sound. And this is one of the reasons why I talk about systems over goals or process over outcomes. Because if you just make it about the outcome, you know, you, you're right. There is a certain level of, of luck and randomness that uh, influences the outcomes that we have in life. You might follow the same steps as Uber, but there's no guarantee that that would actually lead to a similar level of success. Some of it is timing. Some of it's factors outside of your control. There's just a lot of complexity in life. It's hard to see that. So I think uh, one of the values of building better habits or showing up and performing these rituals and putting in your reps is that you kind of increase your surface area for luck. You increase the odds that something good happens to you. This is one of uh, Richard Hamming, who's a famous scientist. He's got a great quote, something along the lines of like, that something happens to you is not luck, but what happens specifically is luck. And his point there is like, if you're showing up and putting in the reps and working hard each day, uh, if you're increasing your surface area for luck and for good things to happen, at some point, you're going to strike gold. Something good will come of it. Uh, but you don't know exactly what that would be because life has all these, you know, bits of fits of randomness and luck, good luck and bad luck and good fortune and bad fortune and so on. So a lot of that's outside of your control. And I think, you know, coming back to your kind of central question here, that is a really good reason to focus on the inherent value of showing up and committing to the process of performing the habit. And you know, there are a variety of benefits here. I mean, first of all, like one of the the things that can be a downside of focusing on the outcome or the goal is that you are always putting happiness off until the next milestone. You know, if, if you really do only make it about the result, then you sort of are forcing yourself into this situation where you can only be happy once the process is complete. And that can just be a fatiguing way to live, to always push happiness off until the next milestone. Whereas if you're focused on the process and the system, if you're focused on the habit itself, well, now you can be happy or satisfied or experiencing some sense of pleasure and enjoyment every time the system is running, every time you show up. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like the difference between 
if you make it all about uh, losing 30 pounds, then you box yourself into this very narrow version of happiness where you can only be happy once the scale reads a particular number. Whereas if you focus on being the type of person who doesn't miss workouts or developing the identity of someone who has the habit of going to the gym four days a week, well, now every time you show up, you can feel happy and satisfied because you're reinforcing that desired identity. And so I think this is one of the deeper values of focusing on the habit rather than the result or the outcome is that you give yourself permission to enjoy the process. Let's talk about identity for a second. This is, a, I think, a really key part of, of your book in that you're not just giving the hack of well you, well, you do break it down into its component parts of, you know, behavior change comes down to making it obvious, making it attractive, making it easy, making it satisfying, and you tease it out with great resource for folks to play with that, and as well as the inversion of if you want to get rid of a bad habit, how to make it invisible or unattractive or difficult or unsatisfying. But I was particularly struck by this notion of starting with kind of maybe your particular hard wiring and kind of positioning how you're built, how you're wired, taking that growing self-awareness and positioning it for highest and best, but then looking future-oriented to who is the kind of person I would like to become and then picking small habit development that would promote that person. It's not just the doing of the habit, it's the becoming of the person. Can you talk a little bit about why that is so critical to your system of habit change? Well, I first had the idea for identity-based habits when I was kind of toying with this puzzle or question of why do some people seem to be able to stick with a habit without much motivation or effort, you know? Like you might have two people, one of them going to the gym is how it feels for most of us. It feels like sacrifice, feels like requires work or effort or willpower. And then for another person, they just kind of, they go to the gym every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That's what they do. There's not even really a decision or a motivation behind it. It's just like, that's just part of who I am. And the answer or solution that I kind of uh, came to or decided on was that once a habit becomes part of your identity, it doesn't really require that motivation to complete it. Because in a sense, you're not even really looking or pursuing for behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already believe yourself to be. You know, like smokers don't have to convince themselves to pick up a cigarette, right? They don't they don't use the same language that we use for sticking to good habits. They don't say, Oh, if I just had enough willpower, I'd be able to smoke another cigarette. Or if I just wanted it more, you know, if I just felt motivated, then I'd do it. And part of the reason, you know, certainly there are other elements too, right? There's the nicotine and craving and so on. But part of it is that they identify as a smoker. And I, I've heard from a variety of my readers who have quit smoking who have said that that was one of the key elements of the process of giving up smoking was that they no longer identified as a smoker. It was something their previous self did, not their current self. You know, And I use this example in the book. like You offer a cigarette to two people. First person says, oh, no, thanks, I'm trying to quit. Second person says, oh, no, thanks, I'm not a smoker. And it's the same action. They're both turning down the cigarette. But the first person still identifies as someone who smokes. They're trying to be something that they, they're not, or they're trying to act a, in a conflict with their self-image. Whereas the second person no longer identifies as a smoker, and so the action seems easier. It's in alignment with who they believe themselves to be. And I think ultimately this is really what we're looking for. This is perhaps in this way like true behavior change is actually identity change. Because once you have adopted that new self-image, the behavior change is complete. Like it, it's one thing to say, I want this. It's something very different to say, I am this. And so 
ultimately what we're looking to do is to get to that I am. And this is why I say like the real goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. You know, the goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. Once you look at yourself as I am a runner, I am a writer, I am a meditator, uh, then it becomes much easier to stick with those things. And so that was kind of the origin of identity-based habits. And then I think the natural next question is, all right, well, if that's true, how do I actually change my identity? Like that seems like a kind of big question, a big thing, right? Like if this is so important, if it makes sense that I do want to change how I look at myself, how does that actually work? Mm -hmm. And I think this is where we come back to the importance of small daily habits because, you know, certainly there are some aspects of your identity that are relatively fixed, like whether you view yourself as tall or short. But the truth is there are a lot of aspects of our identity that have been reinforced over time. And the reason that we believe these certain things, the reason that we hold on to these narratives about ourselves, is because we have evidence for believing it. So, you know, like there are all kinds of stories that we tell ourselves that are negative, like I'm bad with directions or I'm not good at math or I have a sweet tooth or um, I'm terrible at remembering people's names. And every time we tell that story and then someone introduces themselves and we don't remember their name, well, now it's like, oh, there's another bit of evidence that I'm, I'm bad at that. And so it's actually the repeatedness of the experience that reinforces the identity. And my thought is, well, that's actually great because that means that we can shape it then, right? If we can build a new habit, a habit that reinforces your desired identity rather than one that hinders you, well, then you have an opportunity to change. And so I think the way that I would describe this is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person that you want to become. And so by taking these small actions, by building these little habits, you're casting votes for your desired identity. And in a sense, your habit is, uh, it's kind of, habits are how you embody a particular identity, right? Like every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Or every time that you write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. And so it's actually through the cultivation of small daily habits that you cast votes for this new type of person, for this desired identity. And eventually, once the evidence builds up, you have a reason to actually believe that about yourself and your, your self-image begins to shift. And I think this is the, the distinction between my approach and identity-based habits and some more common things that you might hear about, like fake it till you make it or something like that. You know, fake it till you make it is fine. There's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with believing something positive or new about yourself. But fake it till you make it is asking you to believe something without having evidence for it. You keep saying, you know, I am a healthy person. I am a healthy person, even though you're not going to the gym or whatever. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence, right? We call it delusion. Like at some point, your brain doesn't like this mismatch between what you're telling yourself you are and what you're actually doing. And so my argument is the most effective way to change your identity, to shift your beliefs, to cultivate a new story about yourself is to let the behavior lead the way, to let the behavior drive the belief. You do one push up, and it's not much. It's not going to transform your body overnight but it is casting a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And eventually over the long run, those votes count for a lot. And so, uh, so that's kind of my theory and process for building these identity based habits. So helpful. And 
consistently what I kept hearing you reference back to is the narrative, right? The narrative that we live under. So um, it's funny, I, I reached out to a friend last night who I recommended your book to, and he went agro. He's this amazing business guy, and he bought the book for himself, bought it for several friends, bought your journal. He's all in, like me. And I asked him in a text last night, what what would you want to ask James uh, in, if you were on the interview with us? And he had these two interesting questions that I think both related to one's personal narrative. And the first one, you can pick one or both to answer if you want, but it was particularly related to your story as a, having a traumatic event as an athlete in high school. Uh, one question was, what if you don't have that traumatic event, that kind of catalytic, forced experience of you're, you're either going to survive or not, and you chose a, a route and some conditions around you and your choice conspired to have a, this amazing life that kind of proceeded. But, but then the other question he had, which was interesting, was what do you do with, when you're really locked into narratives about yourself that are just destructive. Maybe it was came from your family of origin, or you know, you know, you're not mechanical, or you're not uh, very bright, are you? Or oh, you're really pretty, but you're not. You know, those kinds of deep-seated. They may not be hardwired from original kind of how we were wired up, but uh, they were. They've been part of our nurturing that led to a, a really anchored belief. Is there hope for change for those folks around their narrative with these these suggested? small habit development. So again, that's I, I, I'm famous for double barrel questions with a lot of <laughs> nuance to it. You can go wherever you want with it, but I'm, I'm struck by both. The, this notion of if you have traumatic events, you have an opportunity that's unique, even though you don't wish that on people. So if you don't have that, is there, is there hope from a kind of a more flatlined life to find some catalytic movement? And then on the other side, if you have some deep-seated, hard-worn beliefs about yourself that really are influencing your narrative, what can you do to interrupt those those heavy duty stories? Yeah, those are great questions. So, I mean, for the first one, I think that my general theory is when life doesn't challenge you, you should challenge yourself. So, you know, like I think back on my parents, there was a period in their life, they were in their early 30s, they had three kids, uh, all under the age of five. Um, my sister, who's the middle child, was just diagnosed with cancer. You know, they had just bought a house. They It was a, a very challenging period of their life you know, they don't need to be thinking about challenging themselves at that point, right? Life is throwing plenty at them. But 20 years later, things are well-established, kids are grown, you know, maybe now is time to take on a little bit more of a challenge. And, you know, my parents are getting older now, but they still wake up and they swim six days a week and, you know, try to find ways to push themselves physically. And so when life gives you maybe more of that flatlined experience, maybe that's when you can start digging around and looking for a challenge that excites you. Maybe it's something physical like running a marathon or, um, you know, doing a triathlon or going for a hike up some mountain or whatever. Uh, maybe it's mental. Maybe you try to learn a new skill or take on a new hobby. Maybe it's emotional and you decide to volunteer for an organization that means a lot to you or something like that. But the point being that life throws challenges to all of us, but uh, in between those periods of challenge, you know, maybe that's an opportunity for you to, to seek it out a little bit more intentionally. But to the question, uh, the second question, this is, I mean, the answer to your question was like, is there hope? Can you, you know, potentially change that? The short answer is yes, uh, it can be changed and there is hope. Uh, the longer answer, though, is that it's going to require a lot of work. And on the one hand, that can be upsetting and frustrating. And, you know, everybody wants it to be the path of least resistance and be easier. And it's like, oh, I already have inherited these unhelpful beliefs. Now I got to work even harder. But on the other hand, time is going to pass anyway. 
So, you know, you could either have another five years pass and have overcome these beliefs and challenges and things that you hadn't asked to inherit, or you could be there five years later with the same beliefs as you have now and, you know, still be struggling. So I think um, just because it requires work uh, doesn't mean that you shouldn't pursue the goal. So there, there are kind of two ways, two paths forward that come to me right now. I'm sure that there are many others as well, but so the first one is just basic education, and this could be achieved by having lots of conversations or traveling or whatever, but it also, in probably the lowest friction way, is it could just be achieved by reading widely. Now, let's take something that's not like a, uh, a self-destructive behavior or a um, uh, like a more emotional one, but something like, basically, whenever you read a book, you open up the opportunity to reprogram your brain or to look at the world in a new way, to give yourself a new lens for life. So let's say, for example, that you wake up every morning and you make yourself some toast and you really love bread and toast and pasta. But then you read a book, a nutrition book that convinces you that grain is the devil. And, you know, after reading this, you have very little interest in having toast every morning and eating pasta and so on. And so the cue in your life, seeing that loaf of bread on the counter is the same as it was before, but suddenly it means something new because of your new education or this reading that you've done. And I think there are some similarities there to some of the bigger issues that you're talking about here, which is, you know, somebody mentioned something in conversation and that cue triggers a thought of overthinking or of worry or of self-doubt. And it's been reinforced by a lifetime of negative parenting or whatever. Well, if you read widely enough, uh, come across different stories of people who deal with that same experience in a healthier way, or um, read about certain uh, psychology or therapy strategies that maybe help you reframe uh, what those things mean, well, suddenly that same cue can mean something new. So anyway, my point is simply that education and reading can be uh, a potential path for making those experiences uh, for assigning an, a new meaning to the same type of experiences. And then when it has a new meaning, maybe it can have a new outcome. That's really resonant. Look, just to pause on that, like because some of what I'm hearing is is even kind of a nod to some of the interesting research around neuroplasticity and neuroscience when people are trying to rewire their brains, so to speak, as you know, a loose metaphor. But the idea that introducing new narratives over old narratives could really help at least open the possibility that you might want to pick a different route on the story you're telling yourself. Am I hearing that part right? Yeah, I think introducing new narratives is a good way to phrase it. You know, you're basically trying to find a way, all right, whenever I experience this type of thing or whenever this person comes around or whenever this uh, cue arises, I fall into this spiral of depression or anxiety or worry or overthinking or self-doubt or whatever it is. And so you're trying to find a new narrative to insert into that same experience. How can I tell myself a different story about what that person represents or what that cue means or what that situation uh, says about who I am? And if you have a new narrative, a healthier narrative, then it becomes easier to have a different response to those situations. So in order to come up with those stories, come up with those narratives, you need to find them somewhere. And I think reading is, is one good way to find yeah, those. Yeah, it's really helpful. So, uh, so that's the first strategy, but then the, the second strategy, it, it kind of comes down to the source of the problem in the first place, which is that if you are in a situation or grew up in a childhood where, you know, you had all this negative parenting or negative influence, or people were saying like, oh, you're pretty, but you're not smart or whatever, then 
why did you learn those beliefs? Why did you internalize those? Well, in a sense, we kind of, you know, we just got done talking about identity and talking about how our identity is reinforced through our habits and experiences. Well, part of that identity is reinforced by what you do, but we also learn a lot about our personal identities, but from the people around us. If you're, let's say you're in second grade and it's you and like four other friends, and then you've got this one friend who keeps telling these jokes and everybody's laughing. Without anybody saying it, without you thinking about it really deeply, you start to learn, oh, he's the funny one. And if he's the funny one, that means I'm not the funny one. And then somebody else is complimenting how the girl in the group looks. And so it's like, oh, she's the pretty one. If she's the pretty one, I'm not the pretty one. But then you say something and people are like, oh, that's really smart. And then you start to learn, oh, maybe I'm the smart one, right? And and this kind of thing happens all the time. And maybe in one group, you are the funny one. In another group, you're not. And then in a third group, you're the funny one again. And basically, my point is, as you go through life, have these different experiences and start to triangulate who you are based on the people around, the evidence of those identities starts to build up. And uh, eventually you get to you know high school and college and you start to learn, oh man, you know, it seems like in most situations, I am the funny one or I am the smart one or I am the pretty one or whatever the aspect of your identity is that you start to latch on to. And so I think uh, if you keep hearing from your parents or your peers or whoever, you're pretty, but you're not smart. Well, the more that that gets reinforced, the more evidence you build up of that, the more you start to latch on to that portion of your identity. And so I think the answer or the antidote to overcoming that is thinking carefully about surrounding yourself with people who build up the portions of your identity that you do want more of. So you start to every interaction, you're starting to get evidence of this new aspect of your identity. And I think this is one reason why people can sometimes get a fresh start or find it healthy to move to a new city or join a new gym or take up a new hobby or activity because they step into a new tribe that doesn't have context for their old identity. And maybe they start getting reinforced on some new stuff that they want to latch onto a little bit more than their old identity or the aspects of their old identity. And I think if you can combine those two strategies, reading widely and starting to insert new narratives into the same situations, and if you can surround yourself with people that kind of reinforce the aspects of your identity that you want to believe in more, then you can start to maybe rewire some of that stuff that had been handed to you, but you never asked for. Is this some of the the reasons why folks go to their ten year high school reunion and start reverting back in their behaviors from like that? You know, they've they're, they've gone on, they're professionals, they're working life out, and then they go home and they act like they were eleventh grade again. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I I'm not. I can't say for sure, but that sounds right to me. You know, like you. There are all sorts of habits. I, so I came across this story when I was researching Atomic Habits of this woman who uh, she used to go horseback riding with her friend when they were in college. And every time they would ride horses, they would also smoke cigarettes together. And then she decides, you know, eventually they move on, they get out of college, they kind of go their separate ways and get jobs and so on. She stops smoking at some point. She's able to kind of quit the habit. And she also had stopped riding horses. And about 10 years later, she jumps on the horse for the first time in like a decade and suddenly has this urge to smoke. And uh, it surprised her, but it makes sense because that's exactly how habits work. Habits are tied to context. They're tied to a certain situation. Your brain learns an automatic response to a particular situation or a repeated uh, problem. It learns a solution to a repeated or recurring problem. And so 
uh, when she hopped on the horse again, her brain went into that autopilot habitual mode and was like, hey, time to smoke a cigarette. And perhaps there are people who, uh, you know, they go back to their 10-year reunion and their brain goes back into autopilot. It's like, hey, it's time to be in 11th grade again. And uh, who knows, probably happens to varying degrees. But I think that it's it's true that the context and the people that surround us, certain habits and behaviors get tied to that. And uh, we're more likely to fall into those patterns when we're in those situations. That totally makes sense. I, last question, I'm curious, how does this connect to culture building? I, I spend a lot of energy with uh, individual uh, executives and their teams, and we spend a lot of energy around kind of how they're hardwired, how they were nurtured, how they their own personal stuff. But eventually, we make our way from that to their teamwork and their cultural values. Is there a, a direct line between personal habits and maybe corporate habits, and and how a group of people can engage? Well, I think there's a couple areas of overlap. I mean, first of all, just if you want any team or organization to be functioning well. Uh, having people show up as their best selves each day or have their personal habits dialed in puts them in a better position to do well for the company. Um, you know, it's just, it's hard to to do great work as a team if the individuals are fatigued or exhausted or so on. So I usually say that that comes down to two major buckets, what I would call habits of energy and habits of focus. So habits of energy are things like Making sure everybody on your team is getting enough sleep each night, uh, you know, getting your nutrition habits dialed in, having some form of exercise. Not everybody doesn't have to work out like a bodybuilder, but you know, it could be going for a hike or biking or swimming or whatever it is that you enjoy. Especially if you're doing creative work, going for a walk outside each day. A lot of creatives talk about that being like a key habit for them. So those are sort of habits of energy that make sure you uh, have the energy to capitalize on the time that you're spending working. And then there are habits of focus, which are just things that you know help you direct your attention to the task at hand. So I have one, for example, that has been kind of a key habit of focus for me over the last year, which is I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And so by just making that one action habitual, wake up, put my phone in a different room, walk into the office, I basically give myself you know four hours or so in the morning where... I can have you know an actual focus session and work on my agenda rather than responding to whatever distraction comes up on my screen. So uh, that's an example of a habit of focus. So I'd say that's kind of the first thing is you know do the individual pieces of the team do the employees have uh, their habits kind of dialed in? But then there's also like a bigger discussion about habits and culture. You know, a lot of times people talk about the culture of a team or an organization, and your culture is not really the slogan that's on the wall or the mission statement that you came up with at the company retreat, the true culture of any company is the shared habits of that company. If it's not a habit, then it's not really part of your culture. It's just like an exercise you did one time. And so I think for that reason, it makes a lot of sense to understand habits and how they work and to talk about what are the practices and rituals that we perform each day? What does it mean to be part of this group? And it comes back a little bit to what we've talked about previously about identity. You know, and it's not just individuals that have an identity. Every tribe, every department, every company has an identity as well. And that identity, just like an individual's, is reinforced by the habits that are performed each day. The habits that the company performs or that the team performs embody the identity of what it means to be part of that group. And so I think, you know, once again, we come back to your habits are perhaps the best way to express the identity, not only of the individual, but also of the tribe and of the larger group. 
This was episode two, season five of the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge is made possible thanks to the Habit Course from TellMeYourDreams.com. TMYD provides world-class coaching designed specifically for remote teams. Find out why Forbes magazine called TMYD's Habit Course the online course to master working from home. Sign up today at TellMeYourDreams.com.